Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Shonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today, I'm excited to have my guest with us. He is a motivational speaker, a TV host, and uh, a columnist. And I have with me Mr. Cedric Riley. Hi, Cedric. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? You know what? I'm doing pretty good today. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Um, this is uh, my first my first podcast of the year. And so this is yet another new experience for me in 2020. So I'm excited to be part of one of those firsts. So I'm going to start with you the way I do with all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? My labor of love is speaking passionately, uh, hopefully with uh, inspiration and to provide motivation to youth and families clear across America. So I love that. Um, My specialty and jam and what I love to do is working with families. So let's start by maybe you telling us how this became a labor of love for you. Well, the beginning of my life was a little bit tumultuous with uh, me living with my grandmother early on. Like my very earliest memories, I was already living with my grandmother and um, I do believe I have some memories of living with my mother before that, but I don't find those visions to be very accurate. So, you know, I like to say that, you know, my life pretty much be- began with me living with my grandmother. And so I watched the, f- the fights that occurred between my grandmother and my mother over custody of me and my younger brothers and sisters. And uh, that led to us being placed in foster care for the first time when I was uh five years old. And while I was in foster care, my mother did what she needed to do to get us into her custody. And so uh, she was a single mother with five children. And we had a lot of different experiences um, with my mother before we went into foster care. Again, I was seven and a half years old. And that entire journey um, led me to solitude sometimes in, in school And, you know, a classmate would ask what was going on with me or a teacher would ask what was going on with me. And, you know, a five minute conversation would turn into, you know, um, either an hour or a a days long conversation about what was going on in my life. And I I noticed that people were interested that I was having a very different experience than what they thought. And as I graduated high school, I just believed that I wanted to share my story with um, other people who might be going through things or not going through things to encourage that success is a choice no matter what you go through. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for sharing that. And so when I am talking um, just in general, one of the model that I use in my therapeutic practice, as well as my trainings and coaching and all of that is developmental and relational trauma therapy. And one of the premises uh, is that as children, by the time we're seven years old, we know how the world works. Now that's a vast generalization. We don't realize that it's just how our family works or our community or our school, our neighborhood, but we can make as children, these generalizations of this is how the world works. This is how I get my needs met. These are the needs that may never be met. This is how I get love and affection. This is what discipline looks like. Like this is what the 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 template, as I call it, our worldviews, our beliefs, and our behaviors are established as children. So I love to hear you saying that there is this choice that comes, and I believe that awareness brings choice. Sometimes we do things habitually or out of survival, and we don't think we have a choice in the matter. It's just what we do or how we do it. And, um, you know, I, you know, people are walking around living out their trauma, but they're calling it personality. 
that's just how I am, or that's just what I do. And I hear you kind of leaning into that that's not the case. But are there some things that you feel you learned growing up that you've had to very consciously help yourself realize that you have choice against some of those things? Absolutely. So when you say that from from your, your studies that people have a solid viewpoint of the world at seven years old or seven and a half, whether whether that's relative to their own experience or they think this is how the whole world works, I can totally identify with that because I went into foster care at the age of seven years old. And at that time, I had lived in a condemned home. I had lived in a neighbor's house. I had lived amongst alcoholism, drug abuse, um, you know, grownups that I didn't know coming and leaving all times of the day and the night. Uh, I was going into local gardens and stealing vegetables and fruits in order to feed myself and my brothers and sisters. I was going to the grocery store to help people with grocery bags for a few dollars. I was going to the local pizza shop to pass out his flyers for uh, $3 and a slice of cake each day. I was also going to the gas station pumping gas for a few dollars every day. And and then I was also getting on a bus. At seven years old, I was going downtown, um, hustling, trying to find a way to make a few dollars every single day. And so at seven years old, I, I, I thought that I was a man of the house. I thought that I was finding a way to make money to support myself and my family. And at the same time, I was experiencing levels of neglect that I didn't understand were not normal. And so, you know, when your 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 baby brother is running around the neighborhood with a diaper on and no shoes, and he's three years old, and your sisters are, you know, anywhere in the neighborhood you don't know, and then me and myself, I was just, you know, anywhere Cleveland, Ohio, at any given time, you know, um, my my I remember peeling the skin off of my legs just because my legs were so dry, um, not realizing that I was supposed to be putting lotion on every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I would just sit on the stairs and peel skin off my legs. And I didn't realize like it was terrible. Um, you know, one one day I was walking around in these open toe sandals with no socks on. And I just stopped dead in my tracks and realized like, you should definitely have on socks and sneakers right now, but you're walking around in the fall you know, it's, it's almost freezing temperatures and you have an open toe sandals. And, and, and then, you know, just my idea of being a man was taking pain. So I remember standing in the living room, burning myself with an iron and trying to take that pain because I thought that, you know, being a man was taking pain and I was trying to burn myself and it not hurt, but I couldn't, you know, I burned myself like six or seven times. So as I went into foster care and I got older, you know, I had to teach myself that self-abuse was a thing that I needed to not do. And, you know, it was something that became kind of normal to me to just um, not put myself first, not take care of myself. I had to learn self-care. So powerful. Thank you so much. And there was so much in there that you said um, that... um, that really resonates like with the work that I do and that I think people can really relate to. And part of that is you didn't know that your life was not normal. Like that's the key that I really try to get people to understand whether they're exploring and examining their own life or whether they're looking at someone else, you know, for little Cedric, this was just, this was the thing, right? Mm-hmm. I go, I, I go, I hustle, I do this. I, you, you learned, I would imagine whether it was conscious or not that, you know, if I can find a, find a need and meet it, then some of my need can be met. So helping people at the grocery store, oh, they need flyers passed out, finding those different things. But then when you talked about the neglect that you were experiencing, neglect is one of those very difficult things for people to see for themselves because every child thinks that their life is normal until they have something to compare it to, until they see something that's different. And for you, your life was your life. So the the lack of lotion and peeling skin, like I, I appreciate the vividness of, of your descriptions of your life, the open-toed shoes, the burning yourself so that you didn't feel pain. Like those are um, very real experiences that 
I would imagine you found since you work with so many youths and families, but are not exclusive to you, that so many children have had life experiences that they just kind of thought were life, but built into them were neglect, extreme neglect, were kind of the parent parentification of children at such a young age. You know, you were taking care of your siblings at what, how old were you when you kind of were responsible viewing yourself as the man of the house? I was six years old. Yeah. And some of us can now, whether we're looking at our own children, children we know, and maybe not even be able to fathom um, a six-year-old, you know, being able to do some tasks, you know, (laughs) let alone taking care of their siblings. But that became one of the very foundations of who you saw yourself as and um, as a young child. Um, When you went into foster care, did your siblings, were you all kept together? No, we were, we were split apart and it was very, very different for me because when I lived with my grandmother, originally it was me and my two younger sisters living together until my two younger brothers were born. So when we all got together, that was a new thing. All five of us living together at one time was a new Mm. thing. But then when we went into foster care, they separated my two sisters away from me and my two younger brothers. So now I'm living with my two brothers with my two sisters living separately. So we were separated. And after about six years, my two younger sisters got adopted into a family. I ended up getting adopted by different relatives in that family. And my two brothers got adopted by a different family in a different city. So we all got split up. We all got split up into um, different places. And we actually, we actually never was all in the same place at the same time ever again. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Kind of how, what, yeah, for you, for your siblings, if you know, I mean, I'm thinking specifically for you, you spent a concerted amount of time like caretaking your sisters, you know, and your brothers. Like this is, I, I'm, I'm responsible for them. Then all of a sudden you all are kind of separated and into different places. And then when adoptions came, you were further separated. What was that like for you all? Well, we, we came home with our report cards in our hands and you know, the rambunctiousness of getting off the school bus and running into the house. And that was what it was like one day. We all had our report cards and I was excited to show my mother that I had, you know, did the best I could. My sisters were excited too. Everybody was excited. And we all piled off the bus and we, cause it was, you know, three or four of us traveling at, around at the time, cause it was five of us. And so we all ran into the house. When we got into the house, our mother was laying on the bed crying and, and um, it was not like her. And so we were like, you know, mom, what's going on with you? And she said, a social worker came by today and was talking about taking you all out of out of the house and taking you all into foster care. I had never heard of foster care before. And uh, my mother said, you know, I, I, I told this lady, only way she's taking you off from me is if she come back with the police. But I don't know if she's going to come back with the police. So I want you and your sisters and brothers to go upstairs and pack your clothes just in case. Now, when we left, our mother told us that this would be temporary and that, you know, she would be taking us out of foster care soon. So don't worry. But as we stood out on a tree lawn, uh, because this social worker came with the police, I looked back at the house one last time, hoping that eventually I would be moving back with my mother someday. But as I realized that we were, you know, moving into foster care for months and years, I mean, I felt like I felt like tears were being jerked out of my eyes involuntarily. And, um, you know, I couldn't cry outwardly all the time. So I just, I just began, I just began the process of crying on the inside for years. Hmm. That process of crying on the inside for you, did that ever materialize into any kind of outlet that you can identify for some people that outlet is anger for some people it's creativity for some people it's athletics you know what what did that internalization of that experience kind of yield for you it turned into an emergency for me to save my life and to save 
my brothers and sisters' lives. And so when we talk about having an understanding of the world, you know, at seven years old, like when I went into foster care, I understood that I was leading the way to saving our lives. I was all, before we went into foster care, I was already hustling to make, make money to feed my brothers and sisters. I was already, you know, ignoring the radio that was playing all night, waking up, waking my brothers and sisters up at six in the morning to get on the school bus on time. I was already washing our clothes by hands in the dark and cold water. Mm -hmm. And so this was what I was doing at seven years old. So when we went into foster care, we were staying in foster care. I realized it was no time for me to joke around and play games about life. I needed to figure out a way to save our life because it was obvious to me that we were just... We were no longer anchored into anything. So, you know, what I did was I started working on my behavior. Um, I, I started, you know, don't try to be the class clown anymore. You can't really joke around anymore. You, The temper that you have, you need to turn that off. I remember at eight years old making a decision that I can't be a kid who gets suspended anymore. I don't have the luxury of laughing and joking and fighting anymore. I need to turn that off. Because if I don't, you know, me and my brothers and sisters, we're just going to get lost in the system. So, you know, it, it turned into a growth spurt for me. Mm, yeah. And and effectively took away all of your childhood. Not that you had had one before then, right? right. But then this, this idea that even if I were going to try to have a childhood, there's no time for that. Wow. Did you, even though you were separated out in regards to the homes that you were living in, did you maintain and have you maintained a relationship with your siblings over the years? Well, the tough part about it is that when I was a kid in that circumstance, our relationship was the extent of visitations that were coordinated by social workers and foster parents. So I had no power over maintaining that relationship, Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I desperately wanted to know what was going on with my sisters, you know, all the time. I just couldn't. And we would only meet up, you know, when social workers coordinated for us to meet up. But I always, always invested my whole entire self whenever we could get together. And so, you know, um, we did what we could early on. But as we got older, we we connected, whether it be on MySpace. Um, I know people don't know of MySpace anymore, but MySpace was a, <laughs> was a form of social media at the time. And, you know, or a phone call, we would we would get on the phone, we would email, we would do whatever we could to get in touch with one another. And, you know, whenever we got in touch with one another, we would all totally invest ourselves in those moments to catch up, to coach up, and to just encourage one another. And so, you know, we did that. Now, once we got older, we definitely, we definitely have all stayed in touch. And um, today we, we try to get back to a sense of normalcy. Yeah, absolutely. So these, thank you for sharing kind of the foundation, these kind of humble beginnings, if you will, from which you've come from. And so now you said your labor of love is um, passionately motivating and inspiring youth and families. How did that start to kind of manifest itself in your life? What lets you know that like, hey, this is what I want to do, or this is what this is, this is where my gifts are, or this is what's needed. I I got adopted at the age of 15 years old and my my mother at the time, she told me to go back and be a child again. She told me to take a deep breath and relax and to just live my life and not to be so concerned about my brothers and sisters because I needed to I needed to spend some time just focusing on my own life. Um she made it clear to me that you know now that that you're here with me in Cincinnati, Ohio, I moved from Cleveland to Cincinnati when I got adopted that your focus now is on Cedric. And so, you know, enjoy life. And so as my world began to open up and I began to enjoy a life of stability, um, you know, I just became happy. I became very happy, but I also had a um, call to action in my heart that, you know, what I just went through was very, very tough. It was emotional 
And now that I'm happy, I want to take this energy to other people who are going through this because I know that there's some kid right now who is in the foster care system and doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I want to let them know that they can be successful. So, you know, um, I was I was coming home from a Thanksgiving dinner one day and we were driving from Cleveland back home to Cincinnati. And I just looked over and I told my mom that I wanted to share my story with other kids in foster care and with, you know, other kids in, in schools and, you know, anywhere I could go to share my story. I wanted to. It was just an epiphany. And when I told my mother that, she immediately started like creating a way for me to do that. She helped me to create a website. She helped me to create brochures. She started like calling local radio stations, telling them that I wanted to tell my story. And before you know it, I was like being featured different places. I, I got on the Russ Parr Morning Show. I um, I got a chance to speak for Wendy's Wonderful Kids, a national conference. And, you know, I just began telling my story whenever and however I could. And this started in, in about the year 2005. Wow. So first, I want to just pause and really, really, really highlight and shout out your mom, your mother. Like the fact that she took this young man and gave him what he always needed and deserved, but did not get, which is a break. You know, this little boy at such a young age had taken on and shouldered the responsibility of an entire family. And over a decade later, she would say, hey, breathe. Like I, that is so beautiful to me. And that is so important. And I think what I want to highlight for listeners who may be listening and maybe they're a foster parent or an adoptive parent, or maybe they're just someone who are around uh, children and you play an instrumental role. One thing, and I do a lot of training of foster parents for foster care, different programs and systems and all that. And what I try to help them understand is let that child be a child. And that sometimes is, um, that has to be very intentional because they don't know how to be a child instinctively. They haven't been given that of that fortune. They haven't been given those circumstances. So I just want to say like, you know, I'm sure in what I hear in your story is you believe this, but that is trajectory changing right there. That is, that is creating a space for Cedric to, to finally just settle down and no longer have to be the man of the family. So that is huge. And then just recognizing that you realize at that moment that you wanted to help inspire um, other youth. You know, I can resonate with that. I I remember being around 14, 15 and having a moment where I knew I I had a message for young girls. Now, I'm I'm just now getting to giving that message, to be honest, but it never left me. Um, it was this idea that we get to say, no, we have control of our bodies. We do not have to allow other people to do what they want with them. And I knew at an early age after I was raped that that was a message I wanted to give. But the interesting thing for me is I had to first believe it. And I had to go through the process that I went through to one, call it rape, because for the longest, it was just that thing that happened when I was 14. Wow. And and so I, I couldn't name it because there was so much shame and there was so much self-doubt, hatred and all of this stuff. But I knew even then that I wanted to be able to empower other young ladies. And so were there some things besides, you know, because at this point, I hear you wanted to give them inspiration, but what do you, what was the message really? Do you think that you were trying to tell these young people at that young age and has that message at all shifted or um, grown since you were a teenager? Sure. By the time I started speaking, um, if you recall, I, I realized when I was seven years old and I went into foster care and I had been in there for months that I was going to have to change gears in my life. And so I had been very serious about, you know, finding a way to be successful in my life, probably from the time I was nine, turning 10 years old. So by the time I got adopted at the age of 15, 
I was like a locomotive. I was on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing the very best I could at every single thing I got involved in. And, you know, I was writing essays for scholarships. I was volunteering. I was doing the best I could in school. I took on uh, two sports. I had never had an opportunity to play sports before in my life, but as a um, high school sophomore and junior and senior, I, I, I played two sports. I played wrestling and I also played football. I became a, a news photo editor. I became a photographer. I became a member of uh, three or four different leadership organizations. And so I was absolutely in grind mode about saving my life and making myself a success. And so, you know, it came second nature to me. Um, once I'm in a room full of other young people or young adults or parents or whoever to say success is a choice because that's what my life was about. My life was about choosing success. And, you know, I tried to write my first speech out. I tried to write it out and (laughs) I had these index cards. I probably had like 20, 25 index cards with my whole entire message written out on them. And my mother was driving me to my first speaking engagement and she drove me to all of them for probably the first two years. Every single place I went, she drove me. I mean, she was like, she was like a partner from heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, adoption completely changed my life. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she was like, I had me in a car and I needed to throw out this McDonald's bag from like yesterday or something like that. And I had the index cards in my hand. I had my suit on and I couldn't get the garbage bag into the dumpster. So I threw it. I threw it real hard. And when I threw it, I threw all my index cards in the trash with the McDonald's bag. (laughs) So I'm like, no, this is my car. So I had to hop in a dumpster with my suit on to get those index cards. And as I'm in the dumpster and I couldn't get all the index cards, it just came to me that, you know what, Cedric, it's going to mean more for you to just come from the heart then it's going to mean for you to have these index cards. So I climbed out the dumpster. My only message that I wanted to get across to these people was that success is a choice. So what I did was I shared my life story um, to say that success is a choice. And it went across very well. People were able to feel me and um, people really enjoyed my message. And so my message was that Success is a choice. Now, in time, you know, people began to ask me, you know, subsequent questions like, okay, that was a good presentation, but what is success? Matter of fact, a woman, a woman stood up when I was in Atlanta. She stood up. She said, you know what, Cedric? And I think she might have felt convicted because she was a foster parent. She might not have been doing everything right. Um, And, you know, here I am talking about how I was abused in foster care, how I was mistreated in foster care. Me and my brothers and sisters were shuffled along from one place to another. And she said, you know what, when you when you get a little bit older, your perspective on this is going to change. And she was like, you know, God bless you. But when you get older, your perspective on this is going to change. I didn't see how it was going to possibly change, because if I if I think that success is a choice, I'm thinking that is no matter what. Um, I can say to you that as I've gotten older, I've defined what success is. And it's not just that success is a choice. It's about survival and then success and then greatness. Mm-hmm. So it expanded, but mm-hmm. it didn't necessarily change, if you will. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And just thinking about, yeah, this is so deep. I love it. <laughs> so thinking about, all of um, the things that can be considered success and how how that definition definitely would differ per person, um, per experience. But I love that in, these ex- in this expansion of your message, there's this idea of putting survival in there because we are human beings and our primary goal is survival. And we are such an amazing species and an adaptive species that we will find ways to survive no matter what. Um, Even if some of those ways we choose to survive, or I won't even say choose, some of the ways we find and navigate to survive have these adverse experiences. Part of it is that survival part. And then 
I hear you now saying that there's from survival to success, and then you have further expanded it to greatness. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you are differentiating success and greatness? Sure. So in order to get out of the survival phase, because I understand from my mother dying while I was in foster care to Mm. um, drug and violence, to me never knowing my father. Um, and then my father, when I when I actually met my father, he was in a casket. I met him at his funeral. Mm-hmm. That everybody does not make it out of the survival phase. Mm-hmm. So in order to get to success, you have to find your fault. You have to find your flaw. You have to find the, the place where you're broken. And for me, it was self-abuse which led to alcoholism and I was literally drinking to see if I could take myself out. Hmm. Now this happened, this, this happened um, around the age of 19 years old is when it started. Well, 18 to 19 years old where it started because I, I, I sort of identified drinking and smoking as part of being an adult. Mm -hmm. And so once I started doing this and, and, you know, also making life choices at the same time, I found myself, you know, needing to grow up, grow up out of that. And, but the problem with it was that I felt like being a grown man, based off my examples, part of being a grown man was being able to drink. And, you know, I wanted to be able to do that. But I knew in the back of my mind that it was wrong, but it still was that all the people that I really loved, they were drinkers. Hmm. So I eventually had to overcome that, but not before I realized what I was doing, which was I was sabotaging myself. And in realizing that, okay, Cedric, you have a self-sabotaging problem. I was able to see that, okay, the way did you get to the next level of your life? is for you to overcome alcoholism, but even deeper than that, for you to get over sabotaging yourself. You know, Cedric, you deserve to be a successful adult, regardless of whether your biological mom is here, whether your biological father is here, you know, um, your, your connection issues, your attachment issues, what you've been through. None of that, none of that should prevent you from being a successful adult. And so then I decided that in order for me to be there for my family, my children, and my potential wife at the time, I was going to have to overcome my flaw of self-sabotage, which at the time looked like alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So, and, oh, go, yeah, ahead, sorry. go ahead. So, No, I was just going to say, during this time, did you feel that you were still making um, strides towards success? even though you were struggling with the alcoholism or was this in the process of kind of taking you off that path? Cause from a, from a very young age, you would set your sights towards, this is what I need to do to be successful. And you started your speaking in high school. So by the time you got to this age um, where you were drinking, um, were you still kind of progressing towards that goal or was, like I said, alcohol taking you completely off that path? Nope. At the, at the time, at the same time that I was drinking uh, or homeless, because I became homeless after I got adopted as well, um, I always found another way to get closer and closer to being a successful um, adult. So, you know, even, even if I was drinking, I would still find a way to write about my story. I would still find a way to speak. There was times where um, I, I might have been drinking and I might have been homeless. And I still found a place to go and speak. Like I was still, I was still speak. And I I never, I never spoke to tell somebody that I was perfect or that I um, was better than anybody or that, you know, my, I was like totally wholesome. I was simply going in there to share my story and to share my belief that success is a choice. And I always found a way to do that, no matter what I was personally dealing with. Um, but I, I came to realize that in order for me to truly become successful 
I was going to have to overcome that flaw. And it was in, in my period with alcoholism that I was able to answer the social worker's question of what is success. And I realized that success is overcoming your flaw. Everybody has a flaw. And, you know, you could point at me and say, hey, Cedric, you have an open container and I, I have to deal with that. But I see that you have a flaw that it doesn't necessarily look like you having an open container, but you're not dealing with it. So once I deal with alcoholism, I can get on with my life and become a success. But if you have not dealt with your issues of insecurity about your childhood or your, your envy or your jealousy or your racism or whatever it is that you suffer from, then you are not able to become successful. And so then I realized, like, just assuming that everybody has a flaw, the way for you to become successful is to overcome that flaw. And um, I think everybody needs to be forthcoming about their flaw. They need to name it. They need to claim it. And then they need to overcome it. And then that's the only gateway to success. Mm. And so then moving forward to greatness, what is greatness then? Greatness is after you have overcome your flaw, it is the the evolution of yourself. It's, it's you becoming a whole new person. Once you Once you become a whole new person, you in essence have a rebirth. You are then living in greatness. Because now you've gotten yourself into a form that you would have never gotten yourself into had you either one, been stuck in your survival mode or two, never overcome your flaw. You would have never gotten into this into this new form. You would have never become this new body. And so when you become reborn of your of your experiences, that's greatness. That in and of itself is greatness. Hmm. So tell us a little, thank you. So tell us a little bit about how greatness is manifesting in you now. So we know that your labor of love is speaking to youth and families, but in what ways does this manifest for you or has it over time? What, how, how is this, you know, whether it's specifically jobs you've done, but how do you keep moving forward in that greatness? Absolutely. So I have always had a, a love for running and a few years ago, I picked it back up and, you know, I was only able to run about four or five miles before I felt like I was just really beat. And I kept at it. I was part of a running club and um, I, I continued my commitment to them. And this is just one example of how I got myself into my greatest form. I kept running with them and I ended up completing the New York City Marathon in the year 2017. Mm-hmm. And that was that was one of the tools that I used to to um, to use as therapy to really get into my to get into my best to get into my best shape in my life um, spiritually, mentally, and physically. But then I said, okay, now that I'm on the oversight on the other side of alcoholism, I need to make sure that I'm incorporating this new tool into my toolbox. So now I'm ready to talk to adults. See, before I identified my flaw. I really couldn't talk to adults, but now that I had overcome my flaw, you know, now I want to speak to adults too, because I know that you're dealing with alcoholism somewhere in there. I know that you have a flaw somewhere in there, somewhere that you might not have overcome. So I, um, number one, I created a motivational soundtrack for youth and families. It's called Seminar Soundtrack. I wrote that soundtrack and then I uh, collaborated with a producer to create a Uh, music and sounds in the background of that soundtrack. And that's available at MotivateFosterKids.com. I am on a mission to motivate all 440,000 youth in foster care and their families, their social workers as well. Mm -hmm. And um, you can find more information about that at MotivateFosterKids.com. I also decided to uh, start a TV show. The TV show is called America's Next Motivator. And I use that platform as a way to talk to people about their life stories and let the world know that, you know, while this person is still living and while this person is still here with us, I want to, number one, record their story. And number two, I want to respect them for the work that they do and let the world know that this person here is one of America's next motivators. So those are those are a few of the ways that that I um, am manifesting greatness in my life. Also, if I can. I'm going to take it a step further. Is that all right? 
Absolutely. Go for it. I have an invention that I want to manifest in the world. And I think that this invention would totally enhance uh, foster care, child welfare, and our relationship building capabilities in the family. Because I feel like our families need to become such a stronger thing um, in our communities. And I think that um, this technology that I would like to create is a way to do that. So, I mean, that's a shot in the dark because it's going to cost a lot of money for me to actually achieve it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's that that's one of the elements of greatness that I strive for as well. Yes. So I, I thank you so much for sharing all the ways in which you are manifesting this greatness. And it, it's always reaching back, kind of reaching back to inspire and to motivate. So um, when you talked about being able to talk to adults now, what I heard, it's interesting to me because so part of, like I said, the, the model I use and especially clinically is this idea that we have these inner children. So these children are still in us. I believe that that five-year-old Cedric is still in there. That seven and a half-year-old is still in there. You know, that that eight or nine-year-old who said, I can no longer afford to do these things. He's still in there. And um, what you can do and have been able to do is become this functional adult that can reach back to those young, those young Cedrics and give them what they always needed, what they always deserved, but they never got. That's affirmation, that's nurturing, that's all of these things. And when I heard you say you now talk to adults, part of me was thinking that you're talking to people in adult bodies, but there is still a part of you that's talking to that little kid in there. And that you're able to reach that kid in there to say, you can. How do I know? Because I did. And I find that to be so incredibly powerful. I know that when I find people who can speak to my inner children, who can see me as this adult now, but has a capacity to kind of reach in and provide the nurturing, the affirmation, the unconditional acceptance, and all of those things that I always needed, uh, that is powerful. So as I say that, I don't know if you've ever conceptualized it that way, but I just want to check in and and hear kind of your thoughts about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I I like to get into a room full of people and remind them that you know, I know that their seven-year-old self is there, their, their five-year-old self is there. But what, what I began to experience is that, you know, I would be going and sharing my story and people would be making me feel like they couldn't relate because I'm talking about what I've been through. And, you know, because I'm not talking about my adult life, that it wasn't for them. Like when I would go into a room full of people, I'm my perspective is that I'm sharing this for everybody that's here, for the children, the young adults, the grown people, the elders as well. And, you know, it, it wasn't until I I really listened to what people were saying that I was able to take things to the next level. And because I didn't like people saying, oh, what you're saying is just for kids. And I'm like, why do why is people saying that to me? Mm-hmm. And you know what I what I heard from them was that because you're not talking about your adult life. See, I, I could spend a whole hour telling you about my childhood, but in order for me to really provide something helpful to an adult, I have to talk about my adult life as well. Mm-hmm. And so it was then that I realized that yes, I'm, I'm definitely speaking to the child in you, but because you need something that, that can supplement your life today while you're paying bills and you're you know managing your life today. I need to let you know that as an adult, I overcame alcoholism. And when I began to do that, it was then that I began to help people connect um, that child who's inside of them to the adult that people are expecting them to be in society and then grow into an even better adult. Mm -hmm, Definitely. I do definitely think that people struggle to connect those past experiences and those inner children to how they're showing up in the world today. It's one of kind of my, my forthright missions to help people understand that, that, that is a thing, (laughs) whether you acknowledge it or not, it's a thing. Um, And so, you know, once people begin to understand that the experiences I've had before 
impact how I show up today, that doesn't, that's not a death sentence. That's not crippling. That is freeing to begin to realize that like, as you frame it, it's a choice. And again, awareness breeds choice. When we are unaware, some of us are just kind of going through life being blown to and fro because we don't feel that we have any kind of control over those things. And this is not to say that there are not systems in place, systems of oppression and all of that that exists. They very much do. There are so many broken systems, our education system, our correction systems and law enforcement, it could be all of the systems. (laughs) But when we can come to the awareness that there is choice because we can be aware that that child who did not have the resources or capability of doing certain things is the one who's taking over and guiding you, but you can give that child what they need. They'll free you up to make the choices that you need to make in the present. And I find that particularly um, encouraging. And I hope that other people do as well. Um, Cedric, you have such a phenomenal story um, of resilience and overcoming and strength and vulnerability that I think is refreshing for people to um, sometimes when people have gone through a particularly difficult childhood, part of the resolution for them is to get over it and move as far away from it as possible. Um, What I can appreciate about you, and I guess in the same vein myself, is that overcoming it and, and getting to the place where we are, we're looking back and we're going back. And we're, we're saying you can too. And I think that is just tremendously powerful and I am appreciative of you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today, just about who you are, the work that you do, or any encouragements? Absolutely. I, I want to encourage everybody that there is a next level of achievement for you when you begin to tell your story. I think that everybody needs to tell their story. There's no story that is insignificant. There is no story that's not worth telling. And when I look around at the world today, I I believe that we have elders who have a wealth of knowledge and experiences that they're taking to the grave with them. And I think that that is a huge, huge mistake by us um, to not get those stories out of our people um, very, very much alike. We have adults right now, 30, 40, and 50 years old, who've had a lot of different experiences in life and they don't tell their stories. So therefore the young adults and the teenagers and their peers don't benefit from them. And I think we're missing out there. And so, you know, I want to encourage everybody to do the exercise of telling your story. Once you tell your story, it's like you gain, it's like you gain new spiritual armor, you know, um, and even, and, and if you had a positive life, if your life was amazing, guess what? That's a fresh air. That's a breath of fresh air to somebody like me mm-hmm. whose upcoming wasn't, you know, beautiful and, and amazing. So if you, you know, people who have had a great upbringing, we need your story too. We need to know how everything went great in your life for 30 years straight. <laughs> um, I think everybody needs to tell their story. I think that we need to, um, bring about a new reality by encouraging people to tell their stories. We need to save those stories and we need to provide them for the next generation. Um, I can be found on Facebook as Cedric Riley. Um, My TV show is a daily source of inspiration. Um, Not too long ago, I had an excellent guest from Detroit. She shared an amazing story (laughs) and uh, you can find that. Um, and, And so, you know, I want to be contacted. I want people to use me. I'm here to be used. You know, I want to tell my story and I just want to encourage everybody that if you're in the survival phase, get into the success phase. If you're in the success phase, get into the greatness phase. If you're in the greatness phase, get out there and be used today. That's beautiful. Thank you so, so very much for uh, sharing your story for that encouragement for others to share theirs. There is so much power in our stories for sure. Um, Clearly uh, we will have Cedric's 
contact information in our show notes. Um, but before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests to provide some interesting, fun, or little known fact about themselves. Okay. One interesting fact about me is that when I tried to figure out what I was going to provide to the world, I went to sleep with that that question. And um, I started to dream about what a reality would look like, right, with my ideas happening. And um, that dream, it turned into an actual place. And then I started to think about that place before I went to sleep. And then I started having that dream every night for like two and a half, three years. So now when I go to sleep, I go to a place that came out of my imagination. And um, I'm trying to work to make that place a real thing in this world. So I pretty much been having the same dream for like three years now. Wow, that is very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Cedric, I really, really appreciate you being here. Um, in case people didn't get the nod, I was a guest on his TV show that you can find, you know, America's Next Motivator. Um, it was such an honor to be there and share my story um, on your show. And I am so glad that you took the time to come to mine and share your story with the world. Um, I am so looking forward to continuing to watch your greatness manifest as you pull greatness out of others. Absolutely. And the same here. I look forward to um, listening to more podcasts from you. And uh, I think that you have a beautiful family. Uh, It's so refreshing to know that other people are out there trying to make the world a better place. And, you know, there's there's several of us. And I just want to appreciate you for the work that you're doing. I want to appreciate your husband. And uh, just thank you for bringing me on today also. And to all your listeners out there, uh, I hope that you all are uh, well. I hope that you all are doing your research and doing the best you can to take care of yourself and your families. And thanks for listening today. Absolutely. So to all my guests, as usual, thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. If you would like to reach me, if you have suggestions for guests or content, you can reach me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel, Labors of Love Counseling and Consulting, where every Thursday we do a Therapy Thursday video. And don't forget to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You all, until we connect again, be well.